Uh, We'll be covering verses 44 through 48 this week, uh, but then we'll read from verse 41, just so we can kind of keep everything in context. Uh, I'll be honest with you, we may uh, probably come back through the back half of these verses again next week, uh, being bivocational in the uh, line of work that I do. Uh, the meth addicts really don't have any consideration for you and uh, (laughs) where we want to get to from week to week. Uh, So we have those limitations sometimes. Uh, So as you're turning there in your Bibles this morning, I want you to think for a second about a physician whom you sought out for all of your ailments and illnesses. And you came to find out one day that during one of your visits there that He knew that you had some sort of terminal illness or an incurable disease like uh, cancer or a a tumor or something. And yet, as you're there with him in the meeting in the office there, he absolutely never said a word to you about it. He didn't say anything to you to let you know that death was on your doorstep. And you would say absolutely that that physician was negligent in his duties. And you would fire him, rightly so, for the short time of life that you have left. You'd want to see that guy lose his license to practice medicine. And so it is with the preacher that there are some things that preachers in America would rather just skip over and never ever have to tell you, never have to deal with from the Bible. And they would rather just preach to you things that are pleasant and enjoyable, like... uh, Five Steps to a Better You, or uh, Three Ways to Improve Your Marriage, or any something like that, right? They would never in a million years think about preaching on a text about hell, sin, and final judgment on their own. And so if I or anyone else were ever to come into this pulpit and try to skip over a text like we have before us and avoid preaching and teaching, you should fire them on the spot for gross negligence of duty, much as you would your own physician. Because a preacher's job isn't to come up to a pulpit and to come up with something new to sort of keep your attention. It isn't to come up here and be entertaining or to be a good speaker. And his job, frankly, isn't to come up here and to help you with your self-esteem. But the preacher's job is simply to come and preach the word that you might esteem Christ greatly in your life. Preaching the word includes the whole counsel of God, and that includes the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the impending judgment to come, and the terrifying horrors of hell. Now, that doesn't mean that in trying to understand the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment that it's necessarily pleasant to hear, or it doesn't come to us easily, or it doesn't create some sense of sadness in our hearts. Because we do not, do we not really naturally start to think about our family members who don't know the Lord? Doesn't our mind start to, to think about those that are not bowing in submission to Him? And I know almost all of you right now probably have someone in mind. When you start to think about what awaits them in eternity at the judgment, it becomes heavy on your heart. It's terrifying to even think about. And our hearts can be filled with so much grief 
even just to think about it. And we become like the Apostle Paul when he wrote about his kinsmen in Romans 9, 2 through 3. He said, That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And it most certainly creates in us a heaviness of heart. But it should motivate us to proclaim the gospel with a sense of urgency to them. That Jesus Christ saved sinners like you and me. And that if they will only repent and believe in Him, cast themselves upon Him, trust in Him and Him alone for their salvation, that they too can escape the fiery judgment that is to come. But at the same time, when we think about what God has rescued us from, and how He has set us free from all condemnation, how the divine wrath that we deserve for our mountain-high pile of sin that we have committed against Him was instead poured out onto the broad shoulders of our perfect, sinless, spotless Savior, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And instead of the fiery torment where there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity, God has instead gladly, gladly given you and I a kingdom. And He's rescued you by His righteous, omnipotent hand and snatched you out of the fire that is to come. Beloved of God, do you have anything to praise Him for this morning? You should never ever need those chrome towers and those light shows and those media shows to get your heart to worship God. This fact alone should drive you to worship. That should be enough. Amen? Amen. This should cause you to have great awe and reverence for Him in your heart. This should cause you to fall down on your knees and bow down in gratitude and adoration for Him. This should cause your lips to overflow with praise and honor and glory for the great and mighty God and His mercy that He's shown you. And so when we lay down a black velvet backdrop of divine wrath and fury... For you as a believer, this should only cause the pure radiating diamond of God's mercy and grace to shine brighter and brighter than even 10,000 suns in your heart. And as much as pastors don't like to preach about judgment in hell, and most Christians don't like to even think about judgment in hell, we nonetheless have to deal with it because by and large, a majority of the teaching about it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. And that includes the text that we have before us today. In fact, he spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven, and he spoke more about it than everyone else combined. And so we start to get a little bit of a glimpse into his teaching on hell and judgment this week as we continue to look at this interaction between Peter and himself that began in verse 41. So let's read our text this morning, starting at verse 41 of Luke chapter 12. We're going to read to verse 48. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. God's inspired and inerrant Word says this. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. 
Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says to in his heart, my master will be a long time coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to get eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act according with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's sufficient for us. It's a means of grace that you have given to us that we might know you more fully, be able to walk with you more closely, and obey you. So Lord, take this time. Let us set it apart so that we might not only hear the words that you have for us today, but we might walk away from here and obey these words. Let them not just build us up in knowledge, but help us... Help it to build us up in the most holy faith, finding ourselves conformed to the image of Christ by it. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, we began looking at this parable that Jesus started to talk about with Peter. And we said there were a couple of things uh, that we need to keep in mind when it comes to understanding the parables that our Lord taught. And the first thing that we need to keep in mind is that most, if not all, the parables that Jesus spoke fall under the category of soteriology. And that simply means that they deal with salvific issues. Soteriology comes from two Greek words, and the first being soter, which means savior or deliverer or preserver, and then logos, which we get the word study or word. And so this is a parable that our Lord taught in order to teach us or to instruct us about the nature of salvation. This was delivered by our Lord to the disciples and us so that we might understand the nature of true saving faith. And then the second thing that we talked about with parables is that they were used by our Lord to help teach or emphasize a particular truth. They weren't allegories or that we try to decipher that cause us our minds to go in a whirlwind about their possible meanings and insert sort of various theories about what they mean. But they are memorable stories that all have a point, and they all have a specific meaning. And in the case of the one that we have in our text this morning, we had seen a similar parable in verses 36 through 38. A very similar story about a master who went away and was at a wedding. And this, his return was to be at a time that was not predetermined. And his servants, they needed to be ready at a moment's notice, so that when he showed up, they would be able to give an account for how they had managed his affairs while he was gone. And the emphasis of what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples was found in verse 40 when he said, You too, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Because the assumption on the Master's part was that as he was away, the servants would be faithful in discharging their responsibilities while he was gone. 
And that's why he used four different little analogies there about readiness, right? Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Be like servants waiting through the night. And be like the head of a home, knowing that a thief is about to come. But the, the bulk of this parable is utilizing an imagery here that is that there's a master of a house who's away and is going to return at some point. Here in, in what we just read in our text today is the very same kind of story. There's a, a master who's away and some servants, and we see that in verse 42 when Jesus responds to Peter's question as to whether that state of readiness was meant for the disciples or everyone else. Peter wants to know who is this person, who is supposed to be ready for his master's return? Well, Jesus answers that question with a question of his own by saying, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So Jesus doesn't answer Peter's question directly, but rather asks a question of his own, as he frequently did. And he sort of continues on with this master-slave imagery to answer Peter's question in the form of a parable. But the gist of what Jesus seems to be telling Peter is this. If you want to be happy, Peter, then be faithful and sensible until I return. If you want to have everlasting enjoyment, then be devoted and wise about your life until I get back. Don't be a lukewarm Laodicean, and I'll come back and bless you with greater and greater reward. In other words, you're the one, Peter. You're the one that needs to be ready. You and whoever has ears to hear, including all of us in this church today. And so what does that mean? What does it mean for us to be ready? What are we supposed to be doing until he returns? It means that you go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 12, and you look at all these things that Jesus taught since that time. It means that you've rejected false teaching and false teachers. It means you've turned to fearing God instead of fearing men. It means that you've confessed Christ publicly and openly, and you went even so far as to be obedient to Him in baptism. It means that you've put your life in the careful, trustful care of the Holy Spirit. It means that you've turned away from materialism and the love of money and the love of the world, and instead you are treasuring up for yourselves treasure in heaven. It means that you've pursued the King and His kingdom of salvation. And now as a result, it means that you must do all of that with a sense of urgency because that he may come at any moment. Do these traits mark your life? Listen, this isn't a smorgasbord in which you can pick and choose the ones that you want to do and what you want to obey. Yeah, I've got that covered, but I'm going to get to that one later. It doesn't work that way. But it's an all or nothing proposition with Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to just be an addition to your life, but he wants to be all that consumes your life. He doesn't want to be on the periphery of your life. He wants to be on the center of your life. He is either everything to you or he is nothing at all. And so this is the question that comes to every single one of us as believers today, this morning. This is the bottom line of the bottom line. This is a proverbial line in the sand that Jesus Christ has drawn himself. 
If Christ were to return today, would he find you faithful and sensible in the exercise of your religion? That's the question. If Christ were to come back, would he find you faithful and sensible? Given the certainty of the future return of Jesus Christ, are you living your life in a way that is pleasing to God? Steve Lawson recently said, If you please God, it does not matter who you displease. But if you displease God, it does not matter who you please. Is the manner in which you are living your life a sweet aroma to the nostrils of God? These are the questions that are pressing down on us this morning because Jesus in no uncertain terms is telling us that this is required for you as a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a cost to being a disciple of His and that cost is for you to lay down your life and do it now so that in the future He may lift you up to be with Him. But notice in verse 44, when Jesus says of the one he comes and finds so doing, truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So this kind of gives us a little glimpse into what the heavenly abode will be like for those who are found faithful upon Christ's return. Look, you're not going to be bouncing around the clouds like an indoor trampoline park. Okay, you won't be sitting around and playing the harp, even though you've never had a lesson in your life. Right. You will be busy and you will be working. And this won't be like the work that you dread to come back to after a long three day holiday weekend. This won't be uh, uh, the work that you have with a cantankerous boss or some customers that you just can't ever seem to please. This won't be an unending work where you're just cleaning the house all the time because of home ownership and child rearing. But this work will be a permanent, pleasurable service to your glorious king. It will be an all-satisfying work that will never grow old, and it will never grow, get any kind of losing of its luster. If there was ever such a thing as a heavenly time card, you're going to be able to barely contain yourself until you have to go and clock in. But for the faithful and sensible servant of Jesus Christ, this is what we call a promotion. 2 Timothy 2, 11-12 sums up what Jesus has been saying when Paul writes to his beloved Timothy. He says, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The Lord will give you his kingdom. Remember back in verse 22, or 32 rather, when Jesus said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you a kingdom. You don't just get a little piece of the pie. You don't get a few little stock options. You get all of it. You will reign with Christ as an heir and a co-regent. And that reward comes by your faithfulness in God. Hebrews eleven six says, It is without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek them. Rewards from God should be expected as a result of your faithfulness and obedience to him. Because God has always promised rewards to those who are found faithful to him. And we've even seen that from back in the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis 
chapter 15, verse 1. God said to then Abraham, who would later become Abraham, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. And in this case, not only would God reward Abraham with offspring, but to a greater extent, God would reward Abraham by being the father of a great nation. But even to a greater extent, he will be the father of the greatest man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1.1, Jesus is called the son of David and the son of Abraham. What greater gift could God ever give a man than to have Jesus Christ within your lineage aside from salvation itself? But this thread of reward is woven throughout the Old Testament like a beautiful tapestry or a beautiful quilt that God is going to reward the faithful. Let me just give you a couple more verses to consider. Psalm 58.11 says, And men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. But what Jesus is saying here in our text is that you should be careful of the stewardship that He has entrusted you with in the gospel. Your faithfulness and obedience to Him will result in a higher, a more full, a more abundant and rewarding work in the life to come. All that He is, all that He has... All the goodness of God will be yours for eternity. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan, once wrote, O Christians, God is so yours in Christ, and so yours by covenant, and so yours by promise, and so yours by marriage union and communion, and so yours by the earnest of the Spirit, and so yours by the feelings and witness of the Spirit, that no power on earth, can ever pilfer your portion, or cheat you, or rob you of your portion. He is not only our God for the present, oh no, He will be our God forever and ever. If God is once your portion, He will forever be your portion. There will never, ever be anything more satisfying in your life than to have God as your portion and to be an active service for Him for all of eternity. Does this not give you great hope this morning? Does this not give you something to long for and something to yearn for? Do you want something in which to have as a great weapon over and against the temptations and the snare that so easily entangle you? Then let the foretaste of heaven and the reward that is to be yours be emblazoned on your heart and, the, and, and branded on your mind. Look to your high calling with which you've been called and the endless delights that will be yours. Look beyond the fiery trials and remember His promises to you. Remember His faithfulness to you. Remember His sacrifice for you. And remember the death that He has died for you. And lay hold of those riches that are yours by faith in Christ Jesus. I remember hiking the Rocky Mountain National Park with my family this past summer. 
And it was one of the most enjoyable and one of the most memorable things that I think I've done with my family in most recent memory. In our last day of hiking there, we decided to kind of embark on this trail that would kind of lead us up to a, a high, high up into the mountaintop where there was a, a lake that was fed by a glacier. It was going to take us thousands of feet to climb, up to uh, several hours for us to get there. The terrain was rugged. The cliffs were steep. There were rocks to negotiate, and sometimes you had to use your hands to kind of climb forward and make progress upward. It was excruciating physically for all of us. But when we got to the top and we reached our destination, there was a satisfaction that we had made it together. There was a a beauty unlike anything that you have ever laid eyes on before. There was rest for us, for our weary legs. There was refreshing, peaceful sound coming from those streams of water. Ladies and gentlemen, what awaits you and I in Christ Jesus in heaven? It pales, pales into comparison with any earthly illustration that I can ever give you. There will be a beauty, but it will be a beautiful Savior. There will be rest, but it will be rest for your weary soul. And there will be streams of water to refresh you, but they will flow out of the heart of Jesus Christ. That's for the faithful. Is that you this morning? Is that what you long for? Is that what you live for? Is that what's set on your mind as you go through this world? You want an antidote for all the malaise and all the apathy and all the things that are going on in this world? Then look to Christ. Look at what He's done for you. Look at what He's promised to you. Look at what He's given to you. Look at what He's done for you. Fix your eyes on Him and let this world pass away. That's the most sure and pure antidote you will ever get. That's for the faithful. But what about the unfaithful? We see that in verses 45 and 46. In verse 45, it starts out, But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be a a long time in coming. And he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to and and to, uh, to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Now notice, first of all, This is not a slave who's obedient. This is a wicked man. Instead of selling his possessions and and giving to the less fortunate, he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women. He has no regard for human life, no regard for human dignity. Instead of distributing and giving his things away, he's like the rich man from verse 16, in which he starts to eat, eat and drink and get merry. But he takes into the excess of it. And then he starts to indulge in gluttony and drunkenness. Instead of knowing about the Lord and being in a state of readiness, he is instead living for himself, living for his pleasures, living under an illusion that there is just plenty of time to indulge in all of this sin before his master's return. And you know that many people in this world are living under this very same illusion today. There are countless of people, 
countless number of people who are living in their lives any old way they please, and they think that they are going to trick God or be able to repent on God, repent and believe on God with ease on their deathbed. But the testimony of Scripture is very, very clear that if you continue to harden your heart against God, there is going to come a point in which you won't be able to repent and believe. Romans 1.24, Romans 1.26, Romans 1.28 says that God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Their hearts were given to impurity, so God gave them over. Their hearts were inclined to degrading passions, so God gave them over. Their hearts did not see fit to acknowledge God, so God gave them over. There comes a point in man's life that this is a miscalculation that repentance and belief is just going to come with ease. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27 says, For if we go on sinning willfully, After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. It is absolute foolishness and utterly dangerous for you to think that you can do as you please in this life and enjoy sin to the full, and then at some point in the future, you're just going to find Christ beautiful that you're going to find him satisfying, that you're going to somehow find him to be that all that you've ever really wanted for your soul. And lest we forget, there were two thieves, two criminals on the cross beside Jesus, and one of them did not make it. Lest we think that is easy to presume on the grace of God. Now I want to, I got to stop right there this week. And I've got to look into these verses a little deeper. Bivocationalism, it causes us to do that sometimes. And as I said, the meth users of this world don't really care about you too much. So, but I want you to be aware and I want you to be armed about something because you're probably going to run across it at some point. And it's a doctrine that has historically been called heresy, but it's making a, a comeback in popular evangelical circles, and it is called annihilationism. Does God just wipe out the souls of those who go to hell? There's a a period of torment and suffering, and then at some point, they're just going to be obliterated so they no longer exist. Is that what Scripture teaches? We have to go into that next week. But I've got to ask you, are you setting your sights on the blessed hope to come? Are you feeling yourself wearied and weighed down with the things of this world that are causing you great distress? What a wonderful truth it is to think that Jesus will grant us great reward for all of eternity if we are only faithful to him for this short time on earth. I want to close by reading this Valley of the Vision prayer, and we're going to make this our prayer. It's called Man's Great End. And this prayer goes like this, Lord of all being, there is one thing that deserves my greatest care, that calls forth my ardent desires, that is that I may answer the great end for which I am made, to glorify thee who has given me being, and to do all the good I can for my fellow men. Verily, life is not worth having, if it be not improved for this noble purpose. Yet, Lord... How little 
is the thought of mankind. Most men seem to live for themselves without much or any regard for thy glory and for the good of others. They earnestly desire and eagerly pursue the riches, honors, pleasures of this life as if they suppose that wealth and and greatness and merriment could make their immortal souls happy. But alas, what a false delusion dreams are these. How miserable ere long will those be that sleep in them. For all of our happiness consists in loving thee and being holy as thou art holy. Oh, may I never fall into the tempers and vanities, the sensuality and the folly of this present world. It is a place of inexpressible sorrow, a vast, empty nothingness. Time is a moment, a vapor, and all of its enjoyments are empty bubbles, fleeting blasts of wind from which nothing satisfactory can be derived. Give me grace always to keep in covenant with thee and to reject as a delusion a great name here or hereafter together with all sinful pleasures or profits. Help me, to, help me to know continually that there can be no true happiness, no fulfilling of thy purpose for me apart from a life lived in and for the Son of thy love. Father, what a glorious truth you have given us in your word that there is great reward for those who are faithful and obedient to you. Lord, help this be emblazoned in our hearts today and this week as we go through our time on earth. Help us to look to things eternal and not things temporal. And Lord, give us strength day by day in your graces and in your mercies to live for thee. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.